One of the great luxuries, you might say, of Anglican spirituality is it comes to us year in and year out through our lectionary readings and the way we organize the church year is that we get to spend several weeks thinking about the implications of the resurrection and don't have to pour all of that into one message on Easter Sunday. So this reading from John 14 is a classic Eastertide reading because Jesus was going away and that was not particularly good news to his first followers. They were deeply anxious about what this meant. And we read it in terms of our own discipleship, our own formation into Christ-likeness, because we too need to know that there is a future and that there is a way, simple little Greek term, horos. There's a path forward, there's a road, it implies a journey, a process that we can trust. And what this passage tells us is that Jesus is leading the way into that. And that we are to follow him as that way into this unseen, uncertain future. And so he's assuring his first followers that they'll be able to see that path. Now this brings up something fundamental to Christian formation in Christ. And that is that unseen realities are real. See, if I move quickly and bump my funny bone on something, man, the material world is suddenly real, right? You know that jolt that goes through your whole body when you realize that whatever that bone is, I don't think it's actually a funny bone, but maybe a doctor in the house can tell us, whatever that bone is, is hitting something, and so we're suddenly aware that the material world is very real, very intuitive to all of us. We all experience that day in and day out, that the material world is, is real. But it is fundamental to following Jesus to understand what he is teaching them here. Saying things like, I'm going to the Father, are deeply abstract. They don't have the same sort of intuitive concreteness that my elbow and the corner of a chair has. That seems kind of out there. Like, what can that mean? And I think a part of the reason we read Acts 7 along with this is that it shows us, it's a, it's a concrete example of seeing that invisible things are real and that they can be relied upon. I mean, we don't get the whole context of Acts 7 here, but the, the context here is the people, especially the Jewish leaders, were in a crowd that was going wild. They were kind of a rioting mob full of catcalls and whistles and invective and probably swearing as we think of it today. But if you notice in your passage there, it says, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, something invisible. He hardly notices what's going on. But gazing into heaven, what is that? What was he seeing? Stars? Empty space? What was he seeing? And I, again, I just want you to think about this this morning for a moment deeply. When the Bible says things like this, does this correspond in any important way to anything that's real? Apparently, whatever Stephen saw was so real that it allowed him to do life. Now, just stop there for a second. Whatever he was seeing allowed him to do life including the brutality of being stoned to death, if you can even imagine such a thing. It allowed him to do life, including that kind of brutal suffering, in a way because 
I think what the, the picture that's drawn here is that he hardly notices the crowd because gazing into heaven, he really only has eyes for God. And that allows him to live life in a way that includes a brutal death. So Stephen is seeing these invisible realities that what Jesus is getting to when he says things like, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, or receive my spirit. Now just think for a moment that a sentence like that only makes sense when you have a particular uniqueness as the underlying reality. So look at me, please. You could say, Todd, rest your weight on the podium. Okay, I'm doing so. But you see, that requires deep and important particularity. That there is a pulpit here and that it's real and that I can come to rely on it to hold my weight. And the invitation of Jesus is, there is an invisible reality that is equally, if not more real, than this gets a little too philosophical for me, that's at least as, if not more real than the material world, the invisible created. And so this is what Jesus is laying before them in their deep anxiety. There's a way here. There's a hodos, there's a path, there's a road here. Just like you walk dusty roads to get where you're going from village to village or house to house, there's a way here. This, would, this was not like a deep mystical concept. I mean, hodos would have been one of the most down-to-earth Greek terms anybody would have known in common language. And Jesus is saying that in the same way you know those kinds of roads, there's a road here. So when Jesus is answering the disciples' questions and hearing their fears, he answers in a way that he thinks is both illuminating and comforting, that there, there's a way here. And his words are kind of an exhortation slash invitation to, as he speaks to his disciples, place your confidence in me while I go ahead of you into a future that you cannot yet see. So it's not yet real to you, but I'm going into that future, and I just want you to know that that future in my father's house which, you know, they would have heard echoes of tabernacle and temple, the place where God dwelled with his people. Jesus is saying, as I go into that kind of permanent reality that, that surpasses tabernacle and temple, that there's room for you there. And this was meant to be their basis for confidence. So then Jesus says these very famous words, John 14, 6, and this is what we're going to spend our time talking about this morning. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is no different than him saying, Todd, place your weight on that podium. For it is the only thing, it's the only way that you could be held up. But we hear this today, if not us in this room, certainly the vast majority of the Western world would hear these words today as intolerant. They're too particular. They make a claim to uniqueness that no human being can make. And so it's actually scandalous because it sounds like you're saying every other religion's worthless, right? I mean, just notice the articles, the way, the truth, the life. Notice the particularity in the words no one, right? I mean, Jesus is saying something here that he thinks is important and that actually does correspond to reality. 
So now let's just think here for a moment. Are we to think then of Jesus as a fundamentalist bully? I mean, didn't he realize that he was speaking to crowds of people who were in a culture that had lots of other dearly held contrary views? And so for him to notice all those other views and say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, I mean, isn't that like incredibly narrow-minded? Except for Jesus isn't making that kind of bullying claim. He's assuring his first friends that I am the path. Come follow me and you'll arrive at my father's house. You'll, you'll come into his sphere, into his completed rule and reign. And don't worry, he's initiated all of this in me. So like what you've known of me will also be the future. And so this statement of Jesus is a promise. It's a word of comfort to his disciples that Jesus himself is all they need. There's no need to panic. No need to search desperately for something to medicate their stress. That it's going to be okay. But again, I want you to look at me. It's only okay if what he's saying is real. Otherwise, there's no pulpit in front of me on which for me to rest my weight. Are you connecting with this? We must not dismiss this because of a particularity that feels scandalous in our ears. Come on, let's be fair to the text. Put yourself in the place of the first hearers. They weren't hearing something scandalous. They were hearing something comforting. Don't worry. I am the way and the truth and the life. And you're going to be okay. When I disappear, the road, the horas is not going to disappear. The connectivity that you felt with God through me is not going to disappear. Because invisible things are real. And you can come to rely on them. Like we, you know, we can rely on a checkbook balance. We can rely on a weather report. You know, we've all come to learn to rely on things that are material. Fine, good. That's why God made the world the way it is. That's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Jesus is saying here, though, is there's another kind of safety, Another kind of goodness, another kind of spacious, generous hospitality. But this is what you have to get. That's only true if the particular is true. Without the particular, there is nothing true. And this is why we don't do anybody any favors to start saying and mimicking the wider culture that, well, you know, all religions are about the same. That's disrespectful to every religion. There's no religion that thinks that of itself. They all think they're making claims. And so then we're left to try to discern the best we can whose claims, whose life are you going to come to rely on? Who do you suppose has the best information possible on every aspect of what it means to be human in the image of God? And everybody has to make that terrible choice. Every human being who's ever lived has to make that terrible choice about God. It's an awesome responsibility. A missiologist I was reading recently called Gordon Scoville said that American culture is exhausting itself through its inability to believe that anyone possesses truthfulness sufficient to establish right from wrong ways. That right once we go down that path that nobody has a privileged enough position to make statements like I'm the way, truth, and the life, once we go down that road, there's nothing left but cynicism and despair and pessimism that ends up in a nothingness. 
But the church, you know, hearing this passage, at least, you know, sort of year in and year out, is asked to trust and to give itself to this true Jesus-centered way, to the authentic, hopeful, free path that Jesus asks us to walk on. Now, as somebody who's cared about and tried to practice evangelism since I was 19 years old, I get, and I would be happy to admit, that in too many times, in too many places, John 14, 6 has been used in abusive ways and to belittle other people's beliefs, to belittle their journey. I get it. That's true. Well, I think we, have, we just have to admit, in my opinion, that the church in our lifetime has done that. But I beg you to hear this. It is so important to passing on the faith today. The answer to wrong use is not no use. The answer to wrong use is right use. The answer is not to dis under cultural pressure the constant particularity of Jesus and his teachings. The answer is to recover them and to so embody them with his gracious, open, hospitable presence that our lives actually demonstrate, along with our words, that we are on that way and that we are experiencing the truth, not in an exclusive way that disses you, but, in, but we're experiencing a truth that is so good to us that you're caught up in our goodness. And we're experiencing a life that is rooted in God and for the good of others. You see, that has an apologetic to it too. And I think somehow we've got to get these things back together because I want to say again, there is an unavoidable particularity and uniqueness and even, yes, exclusiveness about Jesus and his claims and his aims. We just cannot get around that. Letting it go is not helpful to us because then there's no pulpit to lean on. And letting it go is, no, is not good for anybody in the world because we want to offer them the thing to lean on. But that requires something real being there. So what if we could do this? What if, thinking, what if we could stop thinking about truth as bullying or fundamentalist? And what if we could recapture truth as a precious gift, right? Lots of you in this room are old enough to have taught a child to drive and all of you do drive and someone taught you to drive so what if somebody had said to you well it, you know it's sort of up to you the brake can be the brake if you want or the gas can be the gas if you want but it's you know it's sort of up to you you know particularity is not really important to driving it's just you know everybody's got their thing in England they drive on the wrong side of the road and they sit on the wrong side of the car and you know everybody sort of does this different and so you know don't worry about it no one would be taught to drive that way. So you say, well, what's gone on here? Again, this is so important for you to get what's gone on here is that religion, spirituality, is no longer in the domain of knowable things. A gas pedal and a brake pedal is in the domain of the knowable. Religion has been set aside as something that cannot be known and that's the clash we all feel. Come on, think about this. Religion's not knowable versus I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except down this road of which I am that way. Now, that is a stunning contrast. I can hardly think of anything bigger. And it's in our families. It's in our places of work. It's in our political discourse. It's all over the universities. 
I mean, th- you can, I mean, this is a bit of a reductionism, but you could kind of understand the universities over the last post-World War II in that kind of dichotomy. What's knowable? And so things like ethics, morals, spirituality, religion, those, you know, for those of you who know this, you know, there's the, the, the fact-value dichotomy that we live with. And so, well, religion is sort of in the domain of values, but it's not in the domain of facts. You can't really know it. But then come on, what does it mean when Jesus is actually promising to a group of human beings, he's looking into their troubled hearts, he's not trying to give them values in the way we think of them today philosophically. He's precisely trying to give them facts, facts that would come, real facts that would comfort real anxiety and connect dots for them that are otherwise invisible. And so The message here is something like this, that the one true creator living God has acted decisively. He's provided a pulpit. He's acted decisively in Jesus. And in doing so, he's rescuing the world through this unique person of Jesus who says he's the way, the truth, and the life. And and one of the reasons that this takes us out of the sort of fundamentalist bullying is that this is truth based in a person, Again, look at the pronouns there, I am. This is not talking about a religious or a spiritual principle or a timeless proposition. This isn't some vague spirituality that all religions are about the same. This is a living Lord leading us down this path into the fullness of truth that it's in him. And the thing to notice here is that for Jesus, the whole vision here points to the Father. So Jesus is very aware of standing between the Father and his realm the realm of which he's in and his disciples being very uptight about it. Jesus sees this and he's trying to paint a picture of a vision of security in the father, the creator, lover, mender of broken people who welcomes them home into his new creation. Can you hear the echoes here of the prodigal son? The path down which that prodigal son was walking away from his brokenness? And who was waiting at the end of that path? The the God who loves prodigiously. You don't just have a prodigious sinner, you have a prodigiously loving God who made creation, who is now working to mend its brokenness, and those who go down that path can have every certainty that what they will find is God. And so Jesus here is not calling for an alternative to knowledge. He's showing the pathway to real knowledge. Because the truth of it is, we don't come to know anything except by first believing. Now, we can't go very far down this sort of philosophical path, but I just want you to think about this for a moment. There is no knowing apart from an a priori believing. This is even the way it works in the scientific community. Don't let anybody kid you. Scientists first think something might be real. They have a belief. Then they follow that belief through hypothesis and testing and all that. There is no way of coming to any true knowledge without first having some belief that may or may not correspond to what's real. It doesn't matter. You test it with hypotheses, right? In the scientific worldview. Well, the same thing is true for us. Jesus is simply saying here, you cannot keep going with your anxious doubt. Your anxious doubt is just going to lead to skepticism, and your skepticism is going to end up leading to an empty nothingness. That's where that road goes. But if you'll believe, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that I will lead you safely to the Father, then that's a different sort of thing. So just place your confidence in it and get on the road. But, but placing your confidence in is that prior thing that allows us to get on the road. So 
So I think our role today, when it comes to this big cultural tension we're living in, is to learn to not just claim truth in that sort of bullying way, but to learn to personify an approach to truth that feels more like stewarding truth and that's rooted in a genuine love for others and a diligence in ourselves that springs from an honest desire to know the truth and in a humility. I just want you to think about the humility of this. This is the Apostle Paul who had visions into heaven, was caught up into heaven. You know, he had the kind of experience that Stephen had and that Jesus would have wanted to assure his disciples with here, just think of Paul's spiritual experiences as they come to us in his letters. Got that in your head? This is the same Paul who said, we now know in part and we see through a glass darkly. You just want to say, even now, Paul? Yeah, even now. But it doesn't erode my confidence I have placed my confidence in this way, in this truth, in this life. And so I'm walking on it. But, or like, you know, Psalm 23, sometimes you go through valleys of the shadow of death and, and that's troublesome. And, and, uh, and in those moments, I know I only know in part, I, I know I only see through a glass darkly, but I've placed my confidence in that this is the way, the truth, and the life. And so Jesus comes among us not as a fundamentalist bully, but he comes among us to show and to teach the life for which we were made. And to show us how relying on his word, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and relying on his presence with us, that we're then enabled to reintegrate our life into the infinite rule of God, which is the only realm to which we are suited, for it is the realm for which we were created. And so these words, again, are not fundamentalist bullying. They're an invitation they're the greatest invitation any human being will ever hear, and it stands open before us this morning. Come, follow me, for I am the way, the truth, and the life. I created you, and I'm preparing a place for you, and you will come and be there with me, and you will rule and reign with me forever and ever. But again, someone might say, in this deep cultural tension we're in, someone might say, but why should I believe this story? And I love the answer that I've learned from Leslie Newbigin. Leslie says, in the end, the only answer we can give to the question is along lines like these. And it, you know, has that attitude of, you know, I see through a glass a little bit darkly. I don't have all the information, but I know this. And I actually do know this. I have been called. And I've been commissioned through no merit of mine, to carry this message, to tell this story, to give this invitation. It's not my story or my invitation. And this is what I think the church needs to hear today. It has no coercive intent. You are left with your own life and mind and heart before God. Nothing in my interaction with you, dear person who is deeply suspicious of religion, deeply disturbed about God, what my invitation has no coercive intent. You know, God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. If God wanted to control opium trade, all he would have to do is make it not rain where the poppies grow. And he could control human behavior. But he doesn't. He lets the rain fall on the just and the unjust. And he leaves humankind for now in charge of their life before him.
And thus our evangelism, our apologetics, our life in our workaday world has to have that same sort of non-coercive effect. Knowing that of all the ways that God could have chosen to deal with humanity, the one he has chosen is in his sovereign loving wisdom the best way to do it. I, trusting in him and trusting in, in that mode of working with human beings, that's what frees me from having no coercive intent. Jesus just let the rich ruler turn and walk away. Okay, it's very important that you have your mind before God. Or Jesus allows Peter to be Peter and says, I'll pray for you. This is what frees us, to live an invitation from the one who first loved me and gave himself for me. That then creates in me a gracious, hospitable, freeing, non-coercive, non-controlling mindset in which I can engage with others in a way that it's good for them. Not at all fundamentalist bullying. Look at me, just a particularity on which I have come to rely on in my life. And I simply offer it to you as a way that you could come to place your confidence in something. Amen. As I invite you now to bow your head and close your eyes for a moment of reflection, I want to make yourself mindful again that for Jesus, the whole vision underlying this business of way, truth, and life, this whole vision is rooted in the initiation of the Father, the one who created you, the one who loves you, the one who is with you mending whatever is broken, the one like the picture of the father and the prodigal son is welcoming you home into the renewed heaven and the renewed earth. Maybe for a moment you could just sit with the goodness of that, the greatness of it, the generosity of it.